Good morning. This is de deceptively heavier than I thought. Uh, I want to uh, just say thank you uh, for leading us this morning. I also want to say that my name's Leonard and I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm happy to see you. It's good to uh, be here. Uh, I'm glad the smoke went away. Just so you know, um, Placer County gave us a variance uh, this week for... Um, Churches in Placer County. Uh, so we are in here and we're uh, in cooperation as we should be as the body of Christ. And so uh, I just want all of you to feel comfortable with that. I know most of you already did. So um, with that, can I pray and we'll start? Father, we are grateful to you. You are good to us. Man, you're good to us. Ways that we cannot see, ways that we see. And God, what we want to say to you is thank you. This morning, as we uh, look at your word, would you be our teacher? Would you let us discover from you something that would transform us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus began to sit down on the mountainside. And as he did, the crowds were kind of coming up to him. And as they paused, he motioned for his 12 friends to come closer. It was kind of this little signal, hey, come up here. And it says that he actually began to tell his disciples. Everyone else was in earshot, and so the message went out to everybody. But in this moment, Jesus is having a conversation with his friends. And the conversation began something like this. Blessed are the, do you know it? Peacemakers, that's all a part of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn because they're going to find comfort. Blessed are those who are meek because they're going to get, they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are, and he goes down this list, doesn't he? And he begins to say this, and he, he says, some, for hungering and thirst after righteousness, you're going to find satisfaction for for. The merciful, they're going to find mercy for the pure in heart that will see God. For the peacemakers, yes, they will become, they will be called children of God. And in this moment, Jesus is, is literally saying to these folks, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is, this, is what, this is what it means to live in a place where God is in charge. That's all the kingdom of God means. In the scriptures, it means the place where God is in charge. It's his kingdom. He's the king. And so he's beginning through his conversation that everyone else is hearing, but it's his close friends that he's looking at, making eye contact with. And he's describing what the kingdom of God looks like. And I'm just going to imagine for a second that I'm listening to this. I'm hearing him say something, and, and a part of me is going like, okay, okay, wait, that's, that's kind of a twist. And, and wait a minute, that, that's a little bit different than I thought. Poor in spirit, I thought you might talk about people who, are, who have a heritage, who are strong, they have the law. I thought you would talk about some of these other things that we have identified ourselves by. And Jesus is sort of changing the script on them. And questions begin to swirl in their mind. And imagine what, what, how those, 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 that wind of questions going around in their mind begin to speed up when Jesus said, And blessed are you when you're persecuted. What? Blessed are you when people revile and say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake. 
Because you're just now like the prophets. Wow. And then as he begins to say, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what, this is what I want you to understand. I need you to shine that kingdom light. Shine that kingdom light to everyone so when they see how you live, be salt and light so that when they see how you live, they can only have one conclusion of your father, that he's glorious. I'm just going to pause here for a second because that was not the conclusion that people made of the Jewish people about their father. See, the, the, the conclusion they made about the Jewish people because of the way they approached law, rules, faith, was that these people are kind of knuckleheads. That's Greek for crazy, okay? They were just upside down and backwards. They, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. These people, they're monotheists in a polytheistic world. Everybody else has multiple gods and they have one. They have this law that they hold on to and cling on to like a pit bull. And we have this freedom of sensuality and how we live. And everybody's looking at them. They're not saying, man, your father in heaven is amazing. They're going, your, your father in heaven's kind of a jerk. Your father in heaven doesn't really protect you. Your father in, and Jesus says, no, you need to live in this kingdom. The poor in spirit, right? That one, that, the way they described. And when you do, everybody, and you shine that light out, they're going to say, your father in heaven. Whew. Now that's a father. That's a father. Way, what a glorious God that is. And in their minds, they're saying, well, Jesus, this just isn't how we've identified ourselves at all. This just isn't how we added up what our faith looks like at all. And Jesus, as he often did, anticipated their thoughts. And so he says, do not think that I've come to destroy or abolish the law. In fact, I've come to fulfill the law. Because in their head, they're going, well, what about the law, Jesus? What about the rules, God? What about, everything that we, what about everything that we've put our hope in? Because to them, the law was the equivalent of everything. If I could pause for a moment and just be a little bold. Christians, we're a lot like that. We worship our Bibles. We have made idols out of the Bible. Now, for those of you who want to fill in the blank of what I might be saying, let me stop you. I believe the Bible. I read it and study it every day of my life. I've memorized it. I am committed to its authority, its accuracy, its truthfulness. I was speaking at a church a few months back, and I held up a Bible and I said, can I say something to you? You mean more to God than this. And you thought I had punched a kitty in the face right on the altar. What? What do you mean we mean more to God than that? God did not give the Bible so that people could become his. He gave it to people who were already his. So they could know his heart. So they could know who he was. So they could be in relationship and in friendship and partnership with him. And there was a group of people who were in that crowd that day, 
who taught everybody. No, no. This is how you get God to like you. This is how you get God to bless you. This is how you get God to be your friend. You have to. And they turn the Bible into an idol. So imagine the look on their faces. Jesus said some pretty tough things to this group. They were called the Pharisees, right? He said some pretty tough things to them. One of the things he said was, you're, you're uh, whitewashed graves full of dead men's bones. That's not nice, by the way. You guys, you guys don't get it. You're dirty cups. You, you clean the outside, but inside it's dirty. He said, you guys are hypocrites. But probably the most devastating thing he ever said to them was you are in error with the scriptures. Because they prided themselves on knowing the scriptures. Can we just let that sit on each of us where it needs to? Because we, we, we today pride ourselves on knowing the scriptures. And sometimes we know the scriptures, but actually don't know the God who wrote them. And we, we, we divide ourselves and we pull back because somebody has a, a minor variance or dis... No, because we idolize the truth and not the one who is true. Jesus is actually tackling that in this section. Because, see, what he's done is he says, I'm going, to introduce, I'm going to introduce the kingdom of God. And he did that in the first 16 verses. Now, in verses 17 to 20, he's actually introducing the king. This is the king. This is the one who's here. This is the one who's speaking to you. And so when he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in a few minutes, Jesus was going to actually show the entire crowd as he talked to his friends how they had done exactly what he said not to do. How they had set aside the least of these, how they had idolized the scriptures, how they had used them for something they were never intended to do. We'll get to that next week, so if you want to know what that's about. But let's look at this. Jesus says, I have come. Do not think that I have come. Jesus actually made the statement a few different times. I have come. And in that culture and in that day, they would have heard this. This person is here for a reason. I have come that you might have life. I have come to set captives free. It was a messianic. It was a declaration that, hey, the boss is here now. The big dog is here now. The Messiah is here now. Please don't get mad because I said God was the boss of the big dog, okay? It's a metaphor. But here's the reality. He's saying, listen, I've come. And he says, don't think that I'm here. Jesus is making a statement everyone would have recognized. 
I've come to do something. I am the one. I am the Messiah. I'm going to do something that only the Messiah could do. I'm going to actually fulfill the law. That's kind of big, isn't it? Something that, that, that Paul later on, or, the, or James later on, as in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, said, why would we put these Gentiles under the law? We've never even been able to keep it. Why would we do that to them? And Jesus said, I'm actually going to come and fulfill it. I'm going to complete it. I'm going to finish it. There's a whole lot of meanings from that word, fulfill. Jesus was establishing the kingdom and he's establishing himself as king. Do not think that I've come to get rid of the law. I've actually come to make it complete. To make it what it was supposed to be. And so Jesus begins those words. Matthew uses this word 17 times. Do not think that I've come to fulfill. But he actually says 17 different times. 15 of those times... It's in reference to Jesus doing something that they said the Messiah would do. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll read words like, and he did this to fulfill what was written. The other Gospel writers do the same. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus. The other writers say, hey, Jesus did this to fulfill something. He did this to fulfill something. And sometimes it actually has Jesus going the long way around somewhere to go sit with somebody. And it says he did this to fulfill. Jesus was very intentional to make sure that everyone who could look at him would say, oh, no, that's the king. That's the one. That's the one that was promised us. Very intentional. And so Jesus says, don't think I've come to get rid of the law, abolish it, to bring. And that word abolish actually means to separate it. And we can understand it a little bit this way. He said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's saying, I didn't come to separate them. I came to take the entirety of everything that has been written and wrap it up in me. Now that's a pretty big claim, isn't it? You'd better be able to, like, rise from the dead to back that up. You'd better be able to raise the dead, work miracles, put ears on, spit on the ground, make mud, give people sight. You'd better be able to back it up. And Jesus did all those things. And here's what he says. I've come to complete it, to fulfill it, to make it complete in me. And he says... Nothing in it is going to pass away until everything is accomplished. There's two thoughts on that. One thought is, common thought, is until the end of the age. When God says, all right, play the trumpet, Gabriel. We're wrapping the program up. Everybody come here who's mine. Everybody who's not mine. Well, I've prepared hell for you. He does have that. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing, right? Some people believe that that's what he's talking about. Other people believe that he's saying until, until I have done everything I came to do, until I have lived the life that you should have lived, until I died the death that you should have died, until I conquered death and rose from the grave again and established the work of the Holy Spirit in you. I would lean more towards that. But if you don't agree with me, that's okay. But that's where I would lean in my studies. And so Jesus says, until everything is fulfilled, I'm going to fulfill the law and none of it's going to pass away 
until I've wrapped up everything that needed to be wrapped up. To understand the words of Jesus in this text, by the way, this is a really hard text to teach, just so you know. It's a really hard text to understand, just so you know. And it takes a lot of, a lot of work to make stuff up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, to understand what Jesus is saying. There's four things that we want to pay attention to. First of all, we need to pay attention and remember and see this in the light of the big story that God's telling. We tend to teach our Bibles or understand our Bibles in, in the micro without the macro. We have to actually begin to see Scripture in a bigger picture. The Bible is one story. And it's one story of a God who said, for my glory and because of my love, I will create and when it gets broken, I will redeem. And I will step into time and space eventually, and I will take upon myself all the weight of the sin of the world, and then I will rise again, and then I will establish what I intended in the very beginning in the garden. I will set that up in eternity, and forever the dwelling of God will be with men, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. And he says, that's what, that's the big story. And so when we see Jesus entering into the scene and he sits down to teach and his friends are close, he's actually saying, you've got to understand this in a bigger picture. The Jewish people in this time didn't have that big picture. In their thought process, they were the kingdom. They were the ones who, who, were, who were there and God was going to establish a kingdom that was them. And all the way up until Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples were still saying things like, now are you going to set up the kingdom? Now are you going to do it? Is it going to happen now? You can read that in Acts chapter 1. And Jesus said, "That's times and dates, that's not for you. Here's what's for you. I want you, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, to tell everybody, to testify everything you've seen these last three and a half years. That's what's for us. And so we have to understand it in the big picture. God has a big story of rescue through Jesus. Here's, we also have to read it and see it in light of that Jesus, of, of the words Jesus is speaking in the moment. This is not a teaching on the law, but a teaching on the king. He's, he's saying in a kingdom. He's, there's something he says before, and there's a whole lot he says after. That we've got to take this words and put them in the context because in a few minutes in Jesus's real time he's going to say to these guys this is how you set aside the least of the commandments this is how you've broken them this is how you twisted them this is how you've manipulated them and he says that's not good and we have to understand it in light of a bigger picture that's why I've been asking you every week take and read the entire Sermon on the Mount every day because when you do, you're going to start getting a bigger picture of the words of Jesus. Here's another thing. We have to understand them in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If we take these words outside of that context, and when I say that, I don't mean acknowledging the reality of it, but actually understanding that that's what Jesus came to do. And he came to establish a kingdom, and his means of establishing a kingdom was not military, it wasn't political, it wasn't sociological, it was divine. That he would come and he would live a sinless life. Try that for 10 minutes and I fail every time. And just when I think I did it, 
I think, oh, I'm so good at this, and then I got pride, and it gets me again. <laughs> See, here's the reality. We have to understand, when Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill the law, he's saying, I'm going to do everything that the law requires of you on your behalf so that you can be friends with me. Wow. You know, there's a word for that. It's a Bible word. You want to know what it is? It's grace. It's grace. Jesus came, I came to do something you could not do, so I'm going to do that. We have to understand it in light of that. A few chapters later in John chapter uh, 13 or 14, uh, 12, I, you, you'll look at it. It's gone. So um, Jesus is sitting with his friends. And as he's sitting with his friends, he says something that is heresy. It's heresy. He says, and, and if, if, if they were self-respecting followers of the law, they would have went, whoa, whoa, Jesus. Back up the theology truck. We do not like what you just said. Jesus said this. This, blood, this cup is the new covenant. What are you talking about, Jesus? What about the old covenant? What about, what about the covenant we have on Sinai with Moses? Jesus, wait, you're, you're messing with us now. This cup is the new covenant. And I want you, I want you to take this bread, and I, this is my body, and I want you to do it to remember me. And for 1,500 years, they had done this faithfully, not to remember Jesus, but to remember the Exodus. And God is... Jesus is saying, hey, all eyes up here. Because there's a new covenant, there's a new way. In John 13, he actually says there's a new command. It's to love one another. And Jesus, Paul, James, summarize the entirety of the law and the prophets in this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself, which is the intention of God from the beginning. And we have to understand that's what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus brought about. Paul said this. He went to Galatia, to this province. There were five cities that he went to. And as he went to these, it was his first missionary journey. And as he traveled to those places, he told them about this new covenant, this Jesus who had risen from the dead, this way of following God, and that God had fulfilled his promise. And there's all these Gentiles coming in. And then after him, there were some Pharisees who had come into the church who had said, we're going to trust Jesus, but we're also going to keep the rules and we're going to keep the law. And they followed behind him and they said things like, hey guys, guess what? Paul didn't tell you the whole story. See, yes, this grace thing is good, but you still have to be circumcised and you still have to eat certain diets and you still have to worship on certain days. And, and they were putting that on the people. Paul writes to the Galatians. That's a pretty scathing letter if you read it. I mean, he's like, hey, pal. It's a flying hey, pal, right? He's, he's after them, and he says to them, listen, if anybody, if anybody gives you a different gospel than I've given you, he should be cursed. And then he says it again. I was growing up in the church. You know what I was told? That's Mormonism. That's Jehovah's Witnesses. That's, that's all the isms in the world. If they come with a different gospel, then they should be accursed. That's not what he's talking about at all. In light of the context, he's saying, listen, if anybody ever tries to bring the law into grace, let them be accursed. Paul couldn't say that unless he understood 
that Jesus had fulfilled the law. And in him, the law of God is complete. We have to understand it in light of that. And finally, we have to understand it in light of the church, both Jewish and Gentile. Both Jewish and Gentile. That as the church progressed in its initial stages, it was a Jewish church and it practiced a Jewish faith. And they had days of prayer, hours of prayer. They practiced all of the things that were very cultural for the Jewish people. And as it became more Gentile, it started looking more Gentile. Can I give you a secret? Don't tell anybody. But the church always takes on the look of its culture. And that's not a bad thing. I go to Africa, and you know what I find? I find African churches. And they look African, they act African, and you know when it's the most disappointing? When I walk into an African church and they sing, Come thou fount of every blessing. And I think, how disappointing. That's a white man's song. That didn't come from you. That didn't come from your story. That didn't come from your history. And I say, no, sing something that's African. Sing something that's Nigerian or not in Sierra Leone because they don't sing very well. But in other places they do. But sing something that is your culture. And all of a sudden, I sense the presence of God uniquely. Every church takes on its culture because that's how it transforms its culture. One of the frustrations that people have with this passage of Scripture is we don't know what to do with understanding none of this will pass away. Not one little stroke or, or comma or period or cross of a T, dot of an I, until everything is fulfilled. And if I understand the book of Acts, and if I understand the writings of Paul, and if I understand even the, the way that the language is shaped, when Jesus died and rose again and the Spirit came, it was fulfilled. And he completed the work of the law for us. So the intention of God could be lived out and the scriptures could become our way of understanding what it means to be a friend and partner with God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So let's keep moving here because I, I want to tell you, he says, for I tell you unless your righteousness, because he kind of wraps up with that and that's a pretty big statement, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they had a nature to their righteousness. There was the nature of their righteousness was simply this. They kept the law, they explained the law, and they enforced the law. Their righteousness gave them power. That was the nature of it. East Parkway. Could that be something that maybe God would speak to us as we walk through a season of transition? But the idea of power is not to keep it, but to give it away. That's why Jesus said, when I come, I'm going to bring good news to the poor. I'm going to bring sight to the blind. I'm going to lift the burdens of the oppressed. I'm going to walk into prisons or where people are enslaved. And I'm going to set them free and I'm going to bring good news. And all of that is in light of what he said. The Spirit of God is upon me, which always means power. And I've been anointed, which always means purpose. Jesus saying, I have power and purpose and this is how I'm going to use it. Maybe... 
Because see, here's what happens, and I'm not accusing anybody of this, but here's what happens. In churches, my history as I work with churches, we use our power to maintain what we love rather than to share who we love. Do you see the difference? There is a radical difference. We have to become the kind of people that say, I don't have to hold on to that because I'm trying to give something away that's the only thing that can change a life, and that's Christ himself. The nature of their righteousness was, was in power. The origin of their righteousness in their mind was their works and their behavior. And so the Pharisees, somebody like Paul could say, as to the law, I was blameless. I can't even say that before I get out of bed. But see, that's how dedicated they were to the law. And yet we're going to see a little further on that they actually were dedicated to something a little different than the intention of God in the law. And the practice of their righteousness was rules, more rules, and then some more rules. And if you didn't follow the rules, they I'm going to use a phrase that we use today, they practice cancel culture. They're just going to cancel you. You don't believe what I believe, poof, cancel. You don't behave like I behave, cancel. You don't think the way I think, cancel. And cancel culture in the church is big. I grew up in a church like that. We were reformed, anti-Pentecostal, and man, if you were not reformed or anti-Pentecostal, cancel. You have no place here. And you know what we stood on? Our own understanding of the word. We canceled even people who studied and were way, way better at it than us. And we canceled them. And we see that. And God's looking at us going, I didn't give you the word to cancel people. I didn't give you the word to declare your righteousness. I gave you the word so you would know how to invite people to God. So they would know how to become friends and partners with God. And that's the invitation of the scriptures for each of us. And here's what he says. Unless your righteousness goes past theirs, exceeds theirs, you're going to miss what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. Paul said there is a righteousness in Romans chapter 3 that comes from God that is apart from the law. And then he gives us that five-letter word we love so much. It's by faith. The intention of God. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and 4, at the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, the intention of God is always that we would know him by faith. That we would know him by faith and that grace would be ushering us into the presence of God because we've trusted him truly for who he is and what he says. That's, that's how we enter in. And their righteousness said, no, 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 it's by works how good you are, how much you do this. And so in order to make up for their lack of goodness, do you know what they did? They put loopholes in the law. They made rules, and then they gave themselves outs, and Jesus called them on that. Here's the nature of our righteousness. He says, unless ours exceeds... Now, remember, he's talking to his friends. And in their head, they're going, okay, Jesus, what about the law? Come on, Jesus, what about the law? What about... Oh, Jesus... And he's answering their question. And he says, unless your righteousness, unless our righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, we're going to miss the kingdom of heaven. 
We're going to miss what God wants to do. The nature of our righteousness is this. We have none. We don't have any. The best that I can do still is missing. And it's not that I don't know how to do good things. I just don't know how to stop doing bad things. There's no righteousness in me. I sin too much. I sin too often. I sin too secretly. I sin too publicly. My own righteousness is too weak to accomplish what God wants done. And that's for me and him to be in a friendship. Spent my entire life in church. And for many of those years, I was convincing myself that my religiosity was enough righteousness. I read my Bible. I pray. I'm nice to people. And I convinced myself that my own righteousness somehow satisfied God. And God says, it's cute, but it doesn't satisfy me. Because if it did, why did I give my life for you? Why before the foundation of the world did I plan to give my life for you? Because your righteousness just isn't enough. That's the nature. Here's the practice of my righteousness. If I really want to live in righteousness, here's what I do. I live in a friendship and partnership with God. I live under a new covenant that says, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then prove that that's true by keeping the commandment that is equal to it. Jesus said there's another one just like it. That means equal to. And love your neighbor as yourself. And remember that guy who heard that? He tried to defend himself. Wanting to defend himself, it says, he said, well, Okay, Jesus, riddle me this. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells that crazy story of a Samaritan that they all thought was yucky. And, and that's the Greek word for gross, okay? They said, Jesus, and he tells this story, and then he makes them cough up the word. So in this story, who was the neighbor? And they're going like, ah, uh, the Samaritan. Jesus is simply saying, come, be close to me. Come be my friend. Come, come love me. And then let's join together in loving others. And I believe that that is not merely a statement of loving the people you see and the people who are like you. Because in Jesus' story, it was very different. He was saying, go out of your way to demonstrate love. Find ways to love somebody. Find ways to give the goodness of God away. Marilee and I, by the way, that's my wife over there. Marilee and I, um, uh, we took a picnic at, at Lake Tahoe yesterday. We wanted to get out of the heat and the smoke, and so we got out of the heat. And uh, we sat there at the lake. And as, as we're sitting there just having a conversation, having our little picnic, a man comes up and he says, I'm not drunk, I'm not homeless, and I'm not a bum. That's a great introduction. <laughs> but I have a need. Somebody broke into my truck and stole everything, and I can't get home. 
those opportunities are not always dropped on our lap. It was just dropped on our lap. It was like, when this isn't even hard, Jesus. We gave him our picnic, and we said, here, have some food. Here's all the money I have left in my wallet. Here, go fill your tank up. Go home. Get home safely. And he did, I think. And I said, you have to know that it's because God deems you incredibly valuable, and so do we. Jesus loves you greatly. He says, I know that. Doesn't always happen that easy, does it? Sometimes it's an enemy. Sometimes it's the neighbor that I heard at 4 a.m. this morning cursing at something in his house. I don't know what it was, but you never know what a drunk person's cursing at sometimes. And my opportunity to go next door to say to him, you got to calm down because otherwise the police are going to come. And with your record, they're going to take you away. Thank you, Pastor. The question isn't, who's my neighbor? But who can I be a neighbor to? In the name of Jesus. Let your light shine before men. And Jesus is saying, listen, the nature of your righteousness is to be my friend. Come close to me. Stay close to me. And then join me in what I want done in this world. And Jesus sets up what he wants done in this world when he does this. And he dies for us and then he rises from the dead. I want to rescue the world. And finally, the practice of our righteousness. They're the origin of our righteousness. I got these a little mixed up. It's Christ alone. Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who did not know any sin, that's Jesus, right? To become sin on our behalf so that in him, that's Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God through Christ. In other words, God says, I will take on all your sin so that when my Father sees you, he sees my righteousness in you. Whew. Isn't that pretty? That's amazing. And it's too good to keep to yourself. It just is. So my question is, how will we, how will we, East Parkway, let this teaching that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount become our story? How will we enter into the story that God is writing right now in this church as we go through transition? How will we say, this is how I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to bring them into places where that are safe, where they can be loved, where they can be cared for, where they can hear the good news of Jesus. I'm going to look them in the eye and tell them myself of a God who loves them. And if that's scary to you, hang, out, hang around with us for a while because I'll show you how to do that. And it'll be fun and we'll learn it together. And we'll walk together and just see, just see, if we cannot, as a community of faith, let our light shine before men, that they would see our good works and brag on our Father in heaven. Wow, he's amazing, isn't he? So let's do that together. All week long, we gathered we prayed, whether online or in person, just simply to position ourselves as friends and followers of Jesus to be that kind of a church. For the next 21 days, we're going to fast and pray together. I don't care what you fast. I'm just inviting you into it. If you don't fast, don't tell me. I don't, I'm not the boss. 
You decide, and if God says no, then don't do it. I, it doesn't matter. But I want to invite you into that. Was, and every week, every day, you're going to get an email. It's going to have a link to a video, just like you saw that Becky led us today so wonderfully to pray for our leaders. God tells us to do that. That's an instruction. Peter gives us that instruction. Paul gives us that instruction. And we should be doing that daily. Tomorrow there'll be another topic of prayer. And the invitation is for you to take whatever you hear in that prayer and say, God, how would you want me to say this to you throughout the day? Because we're friends and we're partners. We're friends and we're partners. See, that's what Jesus is getting to. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of laws and rules and regulations and Bible knowledge and knowing theology, unless it goes past all that, you're going to swing and miss at the kingdom of heaven. This week, I heard so many people pray for their friends, for their neighbors. I don't want to be embarrassing anybody, but Debbie, every time you prayed this week, I felt like I went to faith school because of the way you love people in your prayers. That's what it means. And I'm grateful to have learned from you what it means to pray for other people. Thank you. And I heard that from so many other people. Let's be that church. And then let's stand back and see how our Father in Heaven is glorified. That's what we're doing, okay?